My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 14 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast. Hey everybody, to kickstart the show this week, we'll have some great news about two of Ireland's finest mountain runners achieving excellent results in Europe over the last few weeks. Rene Borg is with us to discuss the issue of doping in trail running. And for a special guest interview this week, we have one of Ireland's leading sports scientists, Joe Warren, who shares some of the secrets of his success, both from what he has learned from his vast academic and practical studies and research, as well as telling us about his journey from 800 meter national indoor track champion to 80 kilometer ultra winner everybody get your running gear on let's go Good to have you with us everybody and let's kick off the show on a positive note and announce the winner of a free entry to the Dublin Mountain Trail Running Festival. The event of course is all sold out. We ran the competition in last week's show, episode number 13, and our winner who correctly stated that the festival will take place in the Glen Cullen Mountain Range. He was actually the first one into the hat and he's the first one out. It's Mark Rally. So well done Mark and fingers crossed for Noel and all the organising team that Mark and everybody else involved will actually get the race in November and if not in November perhaps on an alternative date we have a packed show today everybody so let's get straight into the action and dial in our man on the ground for all the latest race results race director of the Waterville Trail Running Festival Simon Kelly Simon, great as always to have you on the show and Simon, I'll start by saying that to be honest I wasn't even sure if we'd have a race result and calendar slot this week, given the way things have gone nationwide in the last um, couple of weeks since we last recorded our last episode there. But um, we do have a couple of results to report on from about two weeks ago and um, a couple of updates to the calendar as well. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's uh, not great news for those hoping to race soon and planning to race. But there were a couple of results came in. As you said, Imra managed to run two races so they had devil's glen and that was on saturday the 3rd of october an 8.5k race 283 meters of elevation and starting off with the ladies with Eva joyce came home first lady in 43 minutes 24 seconds a crusaders runner based in wexford we had bernie Byrne in 49 minutes and 41 seconds so a little bit behind Eva showed a bit of class there and put a bit of daylight and also Rounding off the podium, Jer Power in one hour and two minutes. The lads were out as well, and Derek Crammond came back in 33 minutes and 48 seconds. Uh, another Wicklow-based athlete there, so staying very local is good to see. We had Robert Moon, or Robin Mooney in 35 minutes and 32 seconds, another Wicklow athlete. And Tim Grummel in 36 minutes and 45 seconds. Again, a Wicklow-based athlete. So good to see everyone staying 
local, close to home, and being very responsible in their racing. Just sure, very- Simon. And I know I spoke with Richard Noonan from Imre there during the week as well. And I mentioned it to him how that if you look at the results of the Imre races over the last couple of weeks with the county restrictions and so on, you can literally see that people are very respectful of crossing borders. And he was saying that the odd time you might see a different county um, coming up on the results that maybe shouldn't be there. And that's only literally because the Imre system system hasn't updated where maybe that athlete is living. So everybody there, they're playing a blinder in terms of respecting the, the county borders. It seems to be. And as I say, I'm sure that's true. And I've seen the odd Dublin person showing up and uh, particularly during that lockdown. And it's obvious if there was 10 or 20, you'd know that people were kind of ignoring or maybe being a little bit lax with the restrictions. But when you see one, as you know, people do move around the country and do relocate. And sometimes it's just not updated. I'm sure that's the case. Um, There was another race on Saturday, October 3rd, a little bit longer, the half marathon there in the Galtys. And that's got 1,107 metres elevation, so enough to get the chest pumping there. Again, start off with the ladies. We had Isabel Oaks, two hours, 17 minutes and 10 seconds. Second, we had Mary Louise Ryan in two hours, 37 minutes and 40 seconds. So a good 20 minutes between first and second there. Isabel again putting a bit of daylight and and really finishing strong. And in third place, we had Kirsten O'Sullivan in two hours, 48 minutes and two seconds. And that's a bear athlete, Cork athlete. So I'm sure Connor Murphy Murphy will be very proud of her. Um, A local that I would run with down here in Kerry and he runs with Bear AC as well. In the half, Connor was in it himself, but he only finished eighth. I want to give him a hat tip there. But we had Henry Brown finished first in one hour, 59 minutes and 21 seconds. So under the two hours, that's some performance. But he was hotly pursued by Mark Wolf, who finished in two hours and 33 seconds. So le- just over a minute behind. And then Mark Pinneford made it a very tight finish with two hours and 57 seconds, so just 20 seconds further back there. So a really, really hot race. All Cork finishers there in the podium for the men's Galti Half Marathon. Hopefully all those athletes, they'll be able to recover, Simon, at least from their racing efforts over the next couple of weeks when we can't race and get hopefully some good quality training in. Um, Any other race results, Simon, to report on? No, well, that's it. And as you were saying, in terms of recovery, Imra have announced that unfortunately all races up to and including the 28th of October have been cancelled in line with government restrictions and recommendations. Now, also, they were hopeful that the Wicklow race, Wicklow Way race on Saturday, the 31st of October would go ahead. But they said it's just impossible at this stage. And just yesterday, they said it has to be cancelled. There is a scheduled Aherlow 50k on for Saturday the 31st of October. But again, there is a question there. They're still looking at the logistical possibility of putting that on. Yeah, I know. It's frustrating, Simon, for everybody, isn't it? But I've said it before in the show, and I'll say it again, that the most important thing, I think, now is that we can just still get out and train. That, you know, we're, we're, we're not locked inside homes yet, um, like we were here in Spain for eight weeks, as we know, back in March and April, where we, we don't have our 5K limits yet either. So we can still get out and train. And that's something I think still to be positive and grateful um, for as well. And um, albeit that it is so frustrating that we can't get out 
and enjoy what we enjoy most, which is racing on the trails and on the mountains. Um, internationally, Simon, there, there was some really good positive news over the last um, couple of weeks from, from two of our mountain running stars, Sarah McCormick and Zach Hanna. Both of them have been on the show. If anybody wants to listen to their um, full interviews, just go back to our catalogue and you'll see two great interviews with two just really, really good athletes great people as well and sarah and zach they've been over to italy a couple of times in the last month and they've had some incredible results and i just want to mention as well just for if anybody's wondering how they're able to get to italy uh, and back with quarantine measures and so on sarah's actually based in the uk and zach is up the north so slightly different and traveling restrictions they have as opposed to us in the republic so they're able to get over and race anyway and Sarah has had a blinder of a month, Simon. She won the Trofeo Nazego, a very prestigious, one of the most prestigious mountain running races in Europe and the most important mountain running race in Italy. She had a great win there back on, I think, the 3rd or 4th of October. And she actually beat the world champion on the day as well. So it was incredible running. And then two weeks later, just last weekend, she had an incredible race again. She had a sprint finish to the line in the Chiavena Lagunc. Um, apologies now if I got that pronunciation wrong. Um, in Italy, in the vertical kilometre race, where she won by 0.3 of a second after 39 minutes of hard graft on the mountain ranges there, she beat the Italian runner, Valentina Bellotti, and she took the win um, to round off a superb season from Sarah. Zach has been doing incredibly well as well. Zach was sixth, I think, in that race against some of the very best Italian runners. And Itali Italy, of course, are a powerhouse in mountain running. So he he's done extremely well mixing it there with the best of the Italians. So a really positive note, Simon, to see two Irish athletes being able to travel and race, first of all, and then having these incredible results as well. Fantastic. Incredible by Sarah. I mean, such a string of results. And Zach as well. I was watching with interest and I found it very, very insightful to see that they had changed to the staggered starts, that they were letting people off at, I think, 10 second or 30 second intervals. But Zach made a comment at the end, which I thought was very interesting, that he felt his sixth place finish. He was just seconds behind finishing up fourth and third. And he felt that as a combative runner, that he would have fared better would he, if he was able to eyeball his opponent and that he really thrives off that. So it's very interesting that this is changing the psychology of racing as well. Now, he said he felt totally empty and he left everything out there and he has no regrets, but he just felt if he had that little bit of energy and that little bit of in his crosshairs, he would have performed a little bit better. Okay, yeah. He, he also, of course, Simon, I didn't mention there just a few seconds ago, he came second in the vertical kilometre race as part of the Trofeo Nazego weekend um, about two weeks before that race as well. And so to, to see an Irishman up on the podium in these races, along with Sarah, of course, as well, it, it's certainly helping to, to keep me motivated seeing these guys um, do so well across Europe in these tough times at the moment. And some other positive news, Simon, as well, just on the on the championship side of things. We, we know, of course, that the World Mountain Running Championships were 
cancelled. They were scheduled for Lanzarote this year. A lot of the Irish guys were, were building the whole season around it. Well, some interesting news came through there last night, just hot off the press, that for the 2022 European Mountain and Trail Running Championships, they're going to do a brand new format. European Athletics, um, backed, of course, by the IAAF, they're going to bring the classic up and down mountain running championship, the vertical kilometer um, mountain running championship, and then the um, trail running championships, which can be from 45k to 60k. They're going to bring them all together over the over the one weekend in the island of La Palma in the Canary Islands. And the, the Canary Islands, you know, may be more famous for their beaches and, and their cheap holidays. But they've actually become a bit of a hub of trail running over the last couple of years. They, they produce an awful lot of top quality Spanish trail runners. They were due to host the World Championships this year. And for 2022, they've managed to get the European Mountain and Trail Running Championships. So something long term for, for maybe the, the, the top end of the Irish um, ultra running scene to, to aim for and to look forward to in 2022. That's fantastic. Uh, I, I, did you have a vote on that to get it home and local, no? No, no, I didn't at all, Simon, but I'll tell you what, when I saw the news came through yesterday, uh, I said, yeah, that will keep me motivated for the next two years. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that one. Brilliant. Well, there's one other story I wanted to touch on, and I, I said it to you just before the show. Um, uh, local to Zach, actually, some of his training ground there up in the Mourns. The Mourns skyline, which was due to take place tomorrow, the 17th, Saturday the 17th, they announced that they would have to cancel just yesterday. But um, surprisingly, they, they announced that there was no refunds but no deferrals either, that unfortunately there was no funds available to provide anything that everything had been outlaid and um i think there's a few questions been asked by some of the runners it's it's uh, not great to see that and um, they are putting on a virtual event so people can participate in their own locality choose 35 kilometer route uh, covering 1,350 metres, but it feels that maybe there's a little bit of a, a kind of gap between um, cancelling and not even offering deferrals for the following year. Yeah, that, that's a strange one, Simon, isn't it? It's something that we've touched on before with the show. Um, you know, you, you had to cancel your own race, of course, the Waterfall Trail Running Festival, and I think you were very open and honest with that, with offering, I think, full or close, certainly close to full refund, Simon, at the time, and giving people the option to, to transfer it the next year. Um, some of the work that I do with Eco Trail, of course, I was heavily involved with the guys there. They offered 100% refunds to anybody who couldn't transfer their race entry to, to next year which you know which was great to see very very generous again around Europe it's been more or less the same with the majority of races offering full refunds so a little bit surprising I think to see that the the Mourn Skyline couldn't offer anything and um, nor even a deferral to their runners so um something that maybe we, we can look at and I'm sure there's I think there was a letter online from the race director, which I'll read maybe later on, and people I'm sure can can have a read later on as well and come to their own conclusions. But for first and foremost, we it's a, isn't it a big pity that a, that a race is cancelled? It's very tough going for anybody that's organising a race at the moment, and you hate to see 
race organizers financially suffer and um, never mind the mental stress of trying to put on a race at the moment so you hate to see people suffering financially as well and well we'll see how that one plays out of course and uh one further it's kind of across the water in the states but it's actually global and it's our our man Laz again, uh, the Backyard Ultra, which is due to take place in Tennessee at this time of year. And due to COVID, obviously no one can travel. Laz has kind of called it almost the World Championships. But this year he's come out and said, one, it is the World Championships. And two, it's going to happen real world and virtually. And how he's doing that is he's doing a country by country event, backyard event. And that's all going to run globally concurrently so everyone starts at the same time they're all going to be streaming live everyone's going to be competing but the interesting part of it is the winner in each country is the person who runs the longest so if let's say so the winner in ireland runs 51 hours it means the person in second has run 50 but the world champion will be the person who runs longest so the second place or your support runner if you're the longest running runner in your country is now absolutely integral to the results and integral to creating this world championship and it's making a team the most important part of this event and really run for your nation will you be stuck on the sofa simon is it this weekend did you say it starts yeah it starts tomorrow but it's going to go i could see possibly getting towards 100 hours with this thing so you'll have to be dipping in and out no one's gonna watch this all live you've got courtney dewalter who i know you've had the fortune meeting before who's run 67 hours you've got another mike wardian who won the virtual one earlier this year with 65 hours these guys are all pitted against each other the top 26 of of the top 30 performances in backyard ultra globally are all competing one of them's in france one of them's in sweden there's a load of them in the states it's going to be very very interesting well, it's a lovely way to end off the segment, Simon. As I said at the start, I wasn't even sure if we'd have a segment for this episode, but there's races still going on, whether virtual or real. We can still get out on train. Zach and Sarah have done incredibly well over the last couple of weeks. They're flying the Irish flag well. So on that note, Simon, I'll say goodbye for now and look forward to seeing you next time. Take care of yourself. Enjoy. All the best, mate. Bye, Simon. Sarah McCormack. My name is Brian Fury. My name is Nicola Duncan. My name is Zach Hanna. My name is Mark Ryan. I'm a mountain runner. 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 Hi, my name is Harriet and I'm a mountain runner. You're listening to Trail Running Ireland. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Renny Borg from Running Coach Ireland. Great to have you with us, Renny, again. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Benny, we've got an interesting topic this week, one that I think is extremely important in, in sport in general and will probably become more and more important in trail running as the sport grows over the next couple of years. And that's doping in sport and doping in trail running. And, you know, people that are listening mightn't think that doping exists in, in trail running. It's it's more related with track races and big city marathons, of course, as well, with a lot of the positive tests that we've seen there and with the Russians being banned and so on from the Olympic Games. And that's been very prevalent in the news over the last couple of years. 
But unfortunately, Rene, doping is actually a problem in trail running and I think will continue to get worse in trail running over the next couple of years. And maybe just to, to set the scene, a couple of quick stats for our listeners. In 2019, 57 athletes tested positive in the trail running circuit, in trail running races around the world. And that's not just last year. I mean, if we go back a number of years, if you look at, say, maybe the the road ultra races, such as Comrades and the Two Oceans Marathon, they've all had winners that tested positive for steroids. In UTMB, they've had top five runners that have tested positive for, for doping. In mountain running, over the years, various athletes have tested positive. The Italians have had a very bad reputation for, for testing positive with doping. So while it's very much, I think, against the ethos of what trail running is, where it's all about the journey, the destination, teamwork, being together on the mountains and in unison with nature, prizes aren't that big, but unfortunately, trail running is becoming more and more commercial and with that comes the temptation to dope for some. Maybe, Renny, we could start our own conversation today with, I know you've done some, some work on maybe defining what exactly doping is and why endurance athletes and trail runners can actually benefit from doping if they were to take something. Yeah, well, I should probably start by saying so this is kind of a it's an unusual topic for me because it's one of the few topics where I have no personal experience whatsoever. And um, if anyone wants to, you know, so. verify, if anyone wants to verify that fact, you can go and have a look at my IMRA results. Uh, or you know, so if you have questions about EPO doping and where to get all this sort of stuff, you know, I'm, I'm not your man. <laughs> you yeah, no, no problem. No problem. But uh, yeah, so it's 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 something obviously we've all heard about it. Um, from from the beginning but, but most people when they think doping they think about you know what we call really what's chemical doping so the drugs um but there's another type of there's two other types of doping as well which is technology doping um and what's called mechanical doping and mechanical doping is not really relevant for running because it's stuff like having a little engine on your bike you know this is actually things that happened in the sport of cycling um but technology doping has become very relevant in running recently, um, you know, because we had this discussion about the carbon plated shoes, which a lot of people think are, are bordering on being technology doping. And technology doping is basically, it, it is defined by the World Anti-Doping Agency as any technology that's performance enhancing or that is against the spirit of a sport. So that obviously means it's a bit subjective, and that's why the the carbon-plated shoes, although they are performance-enhancing, they were kind of allowed slid through because you know there was there was some kind of leeway for discussion. Um, we can imagine all sorts of other technologies. There has been um, there's been things like uh, you know body suits that had in cycling, for instance, that that had a certain layout so that the wind would pass over and you know more aerodynamically and there's been things uh, there was i think it was in australia there was a brand created for runners of some kind of compression garment that was meant to improve blood flow to certain areas and they were actually challenged on whether it should be legal um, but so far, it's still not technological doping, so you can still buy this product. Uh, and the most famous example is the swimsuits, I think, that most people will remember. I think it was from the 2010s, maybe, you know, where suddenly this new swimsuit came along and 
the athletes just absolutely shattered all the the world records that have been long standing. You know, they even shattered some of the records set probably with chemical doping. And then it was decided this this will ruin the sport, so we're we're going to ban that. So there's when it comes to tech technology doping, this is probably the the thing the the average runner, if I can be so free, listening to this will encounter in the coming years. You know, this could become a big discussion if we get you know maybe carbon fiber shoes that work on the trails. I I don't think it's so easy, but let's say something like that comes along, and and even some old time trail runners might say that you know things like gps uh, you know it's it's a form of technology doping in races where finding your way through the course is actually part of the challenge you know and our own imra organization they obviously have rules around this you know so in certain races these um, you could say these gadgets are not allowed. So I think that's probably as much as I can say about the technology doping. But my feeling, Owen, was you were really interested in getting into um, talking about this rise we've seen of chemical doping and trail running in the last, as you say, it's really been the last decade. But since the 1990s, I think, the cases have been detected. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, Renny. I mean, and if any of the listeners just go to Google um, and type in doping and trail running, you will be amazed at the amount of articles that are there and unfortunately the amount of examples that we have. I'll just give you one example, René. In the Sierra Zinal race in the Swiss Alps last year, one of the most high-profile trail running races in Europe, extremely well-organized, a great reputation. Three of the top-end runners um, that day had previously tested positive for for various various doping violations, Maud, Matthias, Pedro Mamu, and Elisa Desco. Three three positive um, cases there. If you if you look globally around the world, you'll find lots and lots of other examples as well. Now, what are the governing bodies doing about it? Unfortunately, Rene. Nothing much, really. One of the problems is that to conduct a test on an athlete, it can be anything around 8,000 US dollars to get a test done. So a lot of the trail running, certainly at a national level, a lot of the trail associations just wouldn't have the, the budgets to be able to do that. And some of the bigger trail running races who can afford it might do some in-competition testing but of course, that presents its own problems because athletes will know they're tested. And if anybody is good at what they're doing doping-wise, they'll be able to beat the system and have it out of their, their own system and well before the testers come along. And unfortunately, just there isn't funding there to be doing out-of-competition testing in the trail-running world. Now, we, we said at the start, Rene, that there's there's not the same money in trail running as there is say in the big city marathons where people can be tempted to maybe dope to get a big 200 grand paycheck or if not more in some of the bigger city races but there are some quite substantial tangible gains if you are a top trail runner in america in some of the bigger european countries like france and spain there's big contracts available for runners that are coming in the top three in the top five in races michelle poletti the the founder of utmb 
he made a point of saying last year that one of the reasons that they don't offer big prize money in UTMB, for example, is to try and discourage people from doping um, because there's not a big prize fund in UTMB. But that, for me, ran into a little bit short-sighted because while there might be small prize money for UTMB, for the actual win, you have maybe nine or ten sales directors from the big major brands who are there literally waiting to sign maybe a 30 or 40 grand paycheck for the top three runners in those races. So there are tangible gains there to be made for for doping in trail running. Uh, not only, of course, the financial gains, but the offer of, of all you want gear, free trips around the world, uh, to go to all the races that you want. So it is really actually a big, big issue. Maybe, Rennie, I could ask you, from, from the research that you've done, how do endurance runners benefit from doping? Well, see, the most famous type of doping is, is obviously EPO. Um, and this, because most people know it from cycling, you know, it was rampant in the Tour de France. And because both are endurance sports, you know, the sort of effects you see in in what say endurance runners is pretty much the same you know and people know it has to do with red blood cells you know you you get more of them but the main thing actually with most types of doping is that it improves your ability to recover and and by improving your ability to recover you can obviously do harder training um in the tour de france it's extra important because you know they're riding for 21 days so if you can recover really well between each day each day it's huge advantage but even for a runner you know if you can put together a fantastic winter training um because you're doping and as you say then make sure everything is well out out of your system by by the time race day and the controllers come around now i know they can be spot checked so that's obviously some sort of deterrent uh, where it's available uh, but that's the main benefit and one thing that a lot of people forget and this this has kind of come more to the fore recently is that at the end of the day because it's the brain that says this is the performance i will allow your body to come with your brain remembers everything you've ever done and i actually recall uh, barry minock who you had on this called telling me this pr- probably nearly a decade ago now that he felt that some people who had doped once in their career they had the benefits of the training they did when they were doping, uh, even if it was, you know, they had served, let's say, their two-year ban, and now they'd come back. But the training they had done, some of the effects of that and, and the memory of having done that sort of training at those sort of speeds will never go away, you know. And, and I think, if I remember right, to his mind, this was an argument for the idea of lifetime bans, you know, for serious doping offenses. Um, so I, so that's, that's one thing. But other than that, obviously, the specific drugs that you look at all have different effects. And some of them are not so useful for endurance athletes. You know, ster- steroids is a typical one, you know, where it's not so clear how it helps an endurance athlete, whether it's quite clear how it helps a weightlifter or a sprinter. Um, then you have stuff like, um, obviously, um, what you call it, amphetamines, which is very good in sports where, where you need to somehow heighten people's reflexes and things like that. Uh, and then you have things that have come to the fore recently, like L-carnitine, which is an amino acid. And some people might remember this is the stuff that Alberto Salazar was experimenting with on the Nike Oregon project. And, and now amino acid, it's actually an amino acid that generally you get from steak, but you can't get as much of it as if you put an IV drip into an athlete's arm and just pump the stuff in. Um, and what Salazar found was that if you 
pumped in lots of it, there was a huge performance increase, like very, very notable. And there was a documentary made about this, you know, and there was suspicion around Galen Rob. Even some of it dropped onto Mo Farah, you know, but nothing conclusive happened there. But I think that's a really good example to show that some of the drugs that um, could give you a benefit are, you know, pure kind of, what would you say, that they're unnatural things that, you know, you couldn't find them in nature. But there are actually things like um, this L-carnitine, which you can get from food or you could buy a big bag, you know, in a bodybuilding store. And it would be totally legal for you to take that. But it's not legal when it is administered by a doctor via an IV drip, for instance. Um, you know, and because, and it's simply because it's seen as going against the, the spirit of the sport. But in, in terms of benefit, it, there are some things that you could take um, that is illegal, or you might even accidentally take it and would give you absolutely no benefit for your particular sport. Uh, but you would still, if it was found in your system, you would still end up serving a ban. You know, so that's one reason you have to be very careful if you take um if you take supplements of any kind, you need to be really careful about the source. What's your own view, Rene, um, on whether a lifetime ban should be in place or not for people who do test positive? Oh, uh, I used to be very much of the opinion that it's sh- that would be the way to go. Um, but I'm a little bit more nuanced now, Owen, in that I think that there always needs to be a consideration by the governing body of the individual drug and the individual situation. Uh, because you are, you, there are obviously situations where uh, it is, the, the, you know, the offense is is milder, um, f- and and where the court or the, the, the I would say the governing body that looks at the situation can clearly see uh, that this is a milder case and those should be treated milder. I think the key is that the the really serious offenses where it is clear that the athlete, in a premeditated way, took a drug proven to be. Uh, performance enhancing for that sport um, and they show absolutely no repentance in those cases I would be a favor of a career-long ban um, for that athlete for the cases where there's reasonable doubt that this was either just someone let's say for instance you could you could go on the doping list if you take a recreational drug and you're caught in, in cases like that I would not be of the opinion that your whole career should be necessarily thrown down the drain I would be in favor of saying some kind of ban needs to put put in place um, you know just as a as a deterrent so that you can't use that as an excuse um, because there are loopholes in the system like you probably own will have strong opinions about things like the 2p which is the um, it's the medical exemption that a lot of athletes get these days you know so there's a joke that Premier League footballers are very, very likely to have asthma, um, yes. you know, and, and so they can use this, uh, these asthma drugs that unfortunately are also performance enhancing, but it's under the pretense we can infer um, that, you know, the, that they are sick, you know, and they need us. And, yeah. and that opens up a can of worms quite clearly. It does. And a lot of Salazar's group had those. Um, is it TUIs? I think they're, they're called. Rene. Yes, TUIs, yeah. I'd also recommend to the listeners, Rene, to have a look at the ITRA website, the International Trail Running Association's website as well, who in some way are the custodians of trail running at a global level. They've tried to implement what's called a their quartz programme 
where the best elite runners in the world, trail runners in the world, can sign up for the quartz program and they essentially make their their bio stats available online. Um, it's very informative about the dangers of doping and um, it encourages elite athletes to sign up. But on the other side, really, a lot of people have been critical of it because it doesn't go far enough. It's not mandatory for the elite ITRA athletes um, and a lot of elite trail runners benefit from the ITRA point system as you know they get invited to races they get appearance fees based on their ITRA points but the quartz passport biological passport program isn't mandatory for everybody they also do very very little testing because I, I suspect of the high costs involved as I mentioned beforehand it's a st- it's a step in the right direction but probably a lot more support and a lot more interest when it probably needs to be shown by the IAAF who have taken ownership now of the global trail running championship races anyway and who are trying to become more and more involved in trail running because they see how popular it is and at the end at the end of the day the more people who are running in trail running races, the more interested the governing body bodies will be. And with their interest, I think they do need to step up and introduce out of competition testing um, for, for trail runners. For any listeners as well, Rene, and I don't know if you've come across it yourself, there's a very good podcast for all the podcast fan, fans out there from the former American marathon runner, Cara Goucher. It's called the Clean Sport Collective podcast. And Cara does great work, her and her team, in, in fighting the, the fight against doping and in promoting clean sport. They, they produce um, a couple of episodes a month. Cara was one of Salazar's athletes at one stage. And she eventually became one of the key whistleblowers in terms of bringing Salazar to, to justice and then um, was interviewed by WADA and made a great contribution in, in busting Salazar. So I highly recommend that podcast, Renny. It's very, very good. Yeah, I, I know of Kara's story and I thought, you know, uh, Steve Magnus was another one, you know, the American coach who's, who blew, he was assistant coach, I believe, for a while for Salazar and he helped blow the lid on that project. And to be honest, I think a lot of us were very suspicious of it from the start. But I think it illustrates... Salazar's project especially illustrates what makes it so difficult to deal with this doping um, subject is that there's a lot of things we don't really have clarity around and where the boundaries aren't clear between uh, ethics um, you know, and what's illegal. Because if we, for instance, look at, so you know, we know that some drugs go on and off the list. So we mentioned caffeine um, you know, used to be on the banned substance list until 2003. Then it was taken off because they didn't want to risk that people got a positive d- doping test if you know, they'd taken too much, had too much coffee um, and on the other hand we have as i said these medical drugs and you have uh, in ultra running for instance there, there has been a bit of a culture especially in american ultra running of using painkillers liberally throughout races you know which i would say you know it, it, most painkillers have serious side effects you know you just need to read on the box and um, yet we we allow their use liberally because it's obviously a prescription drug so that is already a complex issue um, that it can be a little bit unclear why are some things off the list and why are some things on the list. Um, so there's there's definitely a piece of work to be done there to try and clarify what are the criteria and 
that we use to decide what goes where. Um, and secondly, this whole idea with you know technology doping, if you look at the Nike Oregon project, I always looked at that and saw all the technology they were able to throw at the athletes, you know, the cryo chambers uh, that they could step in right after and so on. It does make you think, um, you know, vitamin infusions and whatnot. It makes you think if the spirit of the sport is a living playing field, um, have we in many ways already moved away from that in some areas, because we have certain groups that are very, very heavily financed who can avail of all sorts of benefits um, that groups that are not as well financed can. And how do we determine which of these, you know, kind of enhancements are okay and which ones aren't? You know, I think it's a really, really difficult subject. What we can do, Remy, is, I mean, myself, yourself, the listeners, I think all we can maybe do from where we are is to participate in the conversation, make our opinions known and support brands that have active anti-doping policies, because not all brands do, as we very well know. And I think also to support races, maybe who have a strong doping, anti-doping policy in place. Let me just give you an example. Western states in America they have a lifetime ban policy on all runners who have tested positive. You know, races like that, we can find them in Europe to support them and so on. Um, I know I've had an issue for the last couple of years, Rene, with some of the big city marathons, well, sorry, all of the big city marathons who year after year spend hundreds of thousands of euros um, on appearance fees on Kenyan and Ethiopian athletes where both countries have scandalous, scandalous doping statistics. But yet we keep on bringing um, athletes from those countries to our big city marathons. Now, I'm conscious I don't want to paint all Kenyans and all Ethiopians with the same um, tainted brush. But just like what we did with Russia, I think certainly Kenya and Ethiopia deserve the same treatment. And my own personal um, view and the money probably isn't high enough yet in trail running to attract the Africans. But the way things are going, it could very well do so in the next couple of years. So I think all we can do, Rennie, is just make sure that we that we keep the topic alive, that we talk about it and support those companies and races that have those strong anti-doping policies. Yeah, and I think it goes back to maybe, you know, you, whenever you have a, a societal issue such as doping is, it, it's always good to try and go back to the root cause of the problem um, and, and then look at solutions from there. And we can often wonder, you know, why, why do people dope? And the broader question of that is, of course, why do people cheat? Because there's many other ways to cheat than, than to dope, right? And we've seen ridiculous examples in running over the years, people getting onto buses and marathons and going to the finish um, and, and things like that. Um, you, you know, there's many ways you could cheat in a trail race as well if you're really creative about it. And why do people do that? And it's clear, it's not just about money. You know, it's clear that money is a big factor, especially for the, uh, as maybe as you you say for African countries where the money makes a proportionately bigger difference to them that they win than it would to the average Western athlete. Yeah. Uh, but there is glory as well. And as you say, there's all the, the benefits you can get in trail running in terms of sponsors and experiences and, and prestige, you know, and we have to accept that, you know, that being uh, a top dog in the trail running scene would be a very attractive prospect probably for a lot of people. And there will be the odd bad apple who is willing to to gain that illicitly by whatever means, um, you know, and who wouldn't maybe feel bad about it. Uh, and 
how do you deal with that as a society? As you say, I think the main thing is, yes, yeah, support events that that take it seriously and that do their best to expose it. You know, we've seen events also, you know, who have been very good at, at noticing discrepancies in data for runners, you know, and, and that way exposing that this runner cheated somehow. Um, so that's the, that's the sort of event to support, the sort of practice to support. And beyond that, unfortunately, we are probably down to having to trust in the the overall good spirit of the trail running community. And I think, you know, despite kind of the overall negative tone maybe of this conversation, I think we are probably still in a good place compared to a lot of other sports. Um, there's probably a lot of people who feel that the honor and integrity um, is key in trail running. You know, as you also, because you say it's it's not a highly commercialized sport if you compare to, to soccer and, and road cycling. So I think we still have some of that to fall back on. Um, but definitely this is the time to, to think about how we can stop um, creating a problem that is not very large now, but that could become quite big. And actually just a solution I could think of, Owen, you have this whole idea that if, if you believe, for instance, that um, it's a, you know, we know Turkey, Kenya, Ethiopia, that there's, the doping record there looks very fishy. Um, you could encourage to have, you know, prizes for locals, you know, that we've seen this happening in a number of races where the first local runner actually gets um, a very large prize. The only problem you can run into with that sort of system is it's very easy to get accused of either uh, discrimination, uh, even racism, something like that, you know, so it's like when you try and solve problem you sometimes create another well we'll leave that battle for for another day Rene. Um, appreciate Rene, your thoughts on on that today it was a good conversation and, and hopefully we'll, we'll get people thinking about it more so as well um, and speaking of drugs Rene, i'm going to head off and get myself a coffee to keep me going before we dial in our special guests for this week's episode Rene, thanks a million and have a great week all right thank you For our special guest interview this week, I'm delighted to have Joe Warren with us. Joe is an elite athlete, coach and scientist. He specialises in 800 metres and 1500 metres with five Irish caps to his name, reaching numerous national finals and having won four of these, including junior championships. He's a medalist at the European Cup in Estonia and also incredibly won the 80 kilometre race at Eco Trail Wicklow last year. Joe's day job is as a sports scientist where he lectures in Technological University Dublin and is also the Programme Director of the Masters in Performance Coaching at Satanta College. He has worked with DCO Athletics and GAA Academy teams. He was the High Performance SNC Coach in DCU Sport and was also the Sports Science Author for Irish Runner Magazine for over six years. He has coached and currently coaches several international athletes, working as an advisor to many more. He is also recognised as one of the world's leading experts in the transition to minimalist footwear with respect to performance and injury as a result of his PhD research. Finally, he has been the keynote speaker at a number of international and national events in sports science. So we're very lucky indeed to welcome Joe Warren to Trail Running Ireland. Joe, I thought I would start the chat by bringing the listeners back to the 2006 800 metre national championships final 
in Santry. And the two of us were in the race together. And can you remember, Joe, where you finished that day? I can't actually, Owen. I have to admit, it's uh, it's been a long time. And I've, as you are well aware, I've done a lot of races, particularly over 800 metres. And so they, a lot of them have tended to blend together. But I know that it probably wasn't that high. Um, I may or may not have scraped into a final, but that may have been it about then. Yeah, no, you absolutely did, Joe. Well, I tell you, a young Joe Warren, I think, Joe, you were maybe 19 or so back in 2006. You finished in seventh in 155.3. And then I was just behind you, 0.3 of a second behind you okay. in eight. And I was around 25. So um, it, it's, it's a real pleasure. Joe, that 14 years later, here the two of us are on a trail running um, podcast in, yeah. in 2020. So uh, it, it was great yesterday when I was looking back and remembering time. And uh, it was a great race. And we were seventh and eight. We, we weren't in the bottom two. There was 10 runners that day. Um, but I remember there was some tough competition that day. Because I wasn't sure, actually. It was either that year or the following year was the last time I did not ever make a national final. And from because I, I won my first national final senior in 2008 indoor. And I think since then, there was a 10 year un. Um, uninterrupted block where I didn't finish outside the top six at a national championship and that was wow. uninterrupted so every single indoor and outdoor championship for about a 10-year period um, wow. Brilliant. Yeah. But that, that must have been Joe one of your your first senior championships was it I believe it was yeah that was about the time I first started up into the senior ranks yeah yeah, brilliant. But well, listen, we'll come back to that final uh, maybe later on because there's a couple of interesting things that I want to touch on about that one too. Um, but Joe, I thought the first question maybe today was, and maybe the first bit of conversation could be around your journey from, as you said, being, being an 800 meter specialist and that incredible record of close to what, 10 years of, of getting in the top six in track finals to last year winning the Eco Trail Wicklow 80 kilometer race. So maybe could you bring us through your decision making process to go from 800 meters to 80 kilometers and your journey along the way to, to winning um, that ultra race? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, it was always actually something that I'd always intended to do. I mean, I I grew up in the in the mountains of West Cork, running across the hills there. That's the main area that I had the avenue of of training was up on the up on the Oaten Mountains. So I've always had a love of that, um, and you know, right the way through my track career, I always knew at some point I was going to move into doing some some trail ultras. Particularly, some of the stuff was inspiring me from New Zealand, um, and you know, some of the real famous trails out there. So so it was something I wanted to do, um, and really it comes sided with I had this kind of long span of competing at, at a, you know at a national level I wouldn't ever say I was a very good international athlete I had maybe five caps and and some other kind of good performances maybe internationally but but I never really broke into any major championships or anything um, and so so it got to a point really after probably a very consistent 12 to 15 years at the top end of in Ireland um, I decided to take a break and go traveling uh, and that was the first time I I you know taken that real active break I'd been very consistent up to that point the most time I'd ever had off was two weeks and so so, so I, I, we, we went away for seven or eight weeks my uh, seven or eight months myself and Sandra and traveled around 
world and and uh, and I decided before we left you know that this was the point now that when I came back I was never going to quit running this is the love first love of my life and it's given me more things in my life than I could ever have hoped for and so I intend to run as long as I can move my legs um, but I decided that when I came back I was going to try and have a more of a a balanced holistic view of what I was going to do. I was going to start trying some new things, um, explore, you know, find some, some new, new outlets for, for this love of running that I had. And, and I knew that one of them would be to move back onto the trails and, and do a bit. And so actually when I was out traveling, I, I, I didn't do f- too much for the first maybe four or five months. Um, but then as we moved towards Australia and then towards uh, New Zealand, I knew that some, obviously some of these trails in New Zealand that I'd heard about for years would be there and I got the idea in my head that I'd run the Milford track um, it's 67 kilometers and so about with about two months to go on the trip we and about six weeks out from New Zealand I decided that I'd go and run that so when we got to New Zealand I, I did a few training runs and, and went out and did it and I found it um, obviously incredible it's an incredible trail really really scenic you can see why it's up there as one of the top in the world um, and it was quite intimidating because I had to get dropped at the start of this trail on a boat at about five o'clock in the morning and I'd never ran anywhere close to that distance 30k was the most I'd ever ran before that and um, and so you know I was left in the middle of nowhere I had to bring a, a self um, GPS system because it was completely uninhabited the area um, and so I just set off in the darkness on this trail and I had the the best experience of my life and it really confirmed that you know this this long distance trail running was something for me and the biggest thing I took from that actually is I found it incredibly easy you know this this I've been running my entire life I think I've developed a lot of physical resilience and also very good efficiency uh, and so that I was just able to tip along an easy Sunday run and, and really enjoy it so when I got back really I, I had a year where I tried to transition back into to kind of full-time training again but because of that break for the first time in my career the body was saying you know what I'm not quite ready for this and I had a couple of injuries for the first time in my career and and so it was kind of a year of up and down I put on a bit of weight I wasn't that fit and so that was the point I said right let's just um, focus on on something here and I, I entered the 80k so so interestingly actually the difference between now and then even you know I was hoping to run it this year the 80k um, unfortunately as you know it was cancelled yeah. but you know I, I would probably comfortably say I'm twice as fit as I was last year I mean I'm seven kilos lighter I ran a 5k around um, about six weeks before that 80k last year and I ran 1620 something and it was probably one of the worst 5ks I'd ever ran and yeah. I, I, I won a 5k a couple of weeks ago in 1509 and felt re- like I could go a lot quicker so I'm, I'm a considerably fitter now so it's a shame that it was cancelled this year. Sure um, and then say the, the actual preparation for the 80k race Joe um, how was your training leading up to that? Did you set aside maybe, I don't know, a, a 14, 15 week block to get ready for the ATK or was it just a more relaxed approach and you were just enjoying your training, just getting out on the hills or, or were you very focused? No, I mean, probably if anything, I know I've joked about this with some friends. I, you know, I'm, I'm five days a week, I'm an 800 meter runner. And then two days a week, I'm a, I'm a trail runner. So, yeah. so really the only change I made to my training was that during the week, I would try and get at least one or two of my easy run days out on the trails. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and then on the weekend, I'd build up a, a longer run. But actually going into that 80K, I think the sum total of my long run training on the trails was... I think I'd ran two marathons back to back. So I ran a 40K and a 43K, two weekends apart. And that was about the sum of the long running that I'd done in prep for that. And otherwise, my training is pretty standard. It's about 100K a week of uh, two to three 
two to three kind of quality sessions and, and, and maybe one or two double days. But nothing, you know, there, there wasn't a big, big change in the focus leading up to that, with the exception that I kind of pushed out a few, few long runs. So I don't think in a traditional sense that I was fully prepared for that ultra. I remember actually in the early stage of the race, I was running with, with Keith, who finished third. And, and, and he said, you know, really, if you want to get be ready for an 80K, you've got to have run at least a couple of 50s or 60Ks getting up for it. And I said, well, I actually haven't done anything near that. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. but but again, yeah. No, I just I remember talking to Pablo Villa, Joe, at the start of the podcast episode two, and he won the TDS in UTMB last year. But he was saying, yeah, a bit like what you said there. No way do you need to go anywhere near race distance in training, especially for ultras, because there's only so much kilometers the body can handle. And you know, so if he's preparing for an 80k ultra race. Just like what you said there, he might do maybe two or three 40K races and that's it. Because if not, you will just wear your body down. And even I know from talking to an Irish international athlete there a couple of weeks ago who did an FKT over, I think, maybe 120 kilometers. She was saying that she she has um, trouble sleeping for she actually had trouble sleeping for about three or four weeks after she did the 120k so it's such a demanding effort on your body the ultras that you really have to manage your training and not be too ambitious and just be clever about it as well make sure you get the race day fit and healthy um yeah in terms of fueling joe and you know for, for an 800 meter race obviously you don't need to take anything but for an 80k race, you do need to make sure that you have enough carbohydrates on board. How did you how did you get on with that? What was that experience like for you? Eating when you're running? Um, I just maybe quickly just for you, I answer that question to go back to what you just said. I think a big part of that preparation also is, uh, you know, un- one of the big understated factors is running efficiency or running economy, you know. And yeah. so the fact that I'm coming from a background of quite high end speed and a lot of quality work, three days a week of pretty high end speed work, um, I think that my ability to cruise along using a far lower energy cost than somebody else is a big factor in them ultras. So, so I yeah. mean, the quality work, I think, is a, is a key part in that. Um, yeah. the, the, I'm sorry to cut in, Joe. I'm sure you're probably looking at your heart rate as well, were you? Um, your heart rate must have been probably very, very low as you were running on the, on the, in the ultra race compared to 5K or 10K. You must have been operating maybe at around, what, 130, 140? Uh, so I tend to try and not look at any metrics like that while I'm racing or while I'm out. I'll use them maybe for training or for monitoring occasionally. Um, but but I, I don't like the idea of trying to monitor them things as I'm running. I prefer to, to go off feel. Um, so what I would say is that the pace was certainly conversational. You know, I mean, it was, okay. it was very, very easy, comfortable yeah. pace all the way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but, yeah. Moving on, moving on to the fueling. Um, Joe, how, how did that go for you? It, it was actually incredibly smooth. Um, I, I find it very easy to, to eat and run. I've never had an issue with that before. Um, and so, so the main thing for me was just to try and t- to get a bit of a bit of reading done, you know, uh, well, that I'm a, I'm a sports scientist, so I wanted to go in somewhat prepared. So I talked to a couple of nutritionists beforehand and, and also some exercise physiologists. And, and as I'm sure most trail runners already know, but it's pretty clear that this event is all about nutrition. You know, the person who can take on the most calories 
and maintain that intake for as long as possible are very likely to be at the top of the field. So my strategy is to take on food every 40 minutes. And so I remember actually on the start line of the Eco Trail, I had a bag about twice the size of anybody else. And I was quite concerned about that. You know, I, these guys were carrying nothing. And I thought, have I got this wrong? You know, have I missed something here that, 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 that these guys know that I don't? Um, but one of the big things, I think, at the, in the splits of that race, and I think the sole reason why I won it is because I didn't slow down. In fact, if anything, I got quicker towards the latter stages of that race. And, and I definitely think by a country mile, I ate more during that race than anybody else. And my staple, I use this uh, all the time in any long runs or anything, is a, is a tin of baked beans, you know. And I had two of them on that. So I took a tin of baked beans on at two hours and at four hours during that race. And people laugh at that. They think it's crazy. But for me, it's just a great staple food in a tin, easy to eat, easy to swallow. Um, and so, I, I swear and by so it. Are baked beans, um, are they not protein or do they have a carbohydrate element as well? Yeah, there or is a lot. It's fat based food. Well, there's a bit of everything in there. You know, it's, it's probably considered one of the more rounded meals that you can eat. And, and so... <laughs> The big thing, make sure that it's one of the, the branded ones like Heinz or that, that have got a lot of extra sugar in them. So then you've got, okay, you've yeah. got your fiber, you've got your sugar, you've got your protein, you've got, um, a, there's, there's good fluid in there as well. I mean, I'm, I've no doubt, Owen, that there's probably better things to eat. In fact, I was even considering in the next ultra, I'd probably try maybe baked bean, uh, uh, what they called, um, rice pudding instead. And so right. maybe that might be better, you know, but I'm a big fan of a believer in that it should be whole foods at regular intervals you know okay. um, I'm, I don't want to get on them gels early on I think once you get on there you know as they say once you pop you can't stop I, yeah. I don't I just can't handle that idea it's a long period of time and, and to getting in some whole foods is really essential sure were you tempted Joe to experiment in any way with trying to fat adapt your body and to use fat as your main source it's been very popular over the last couple of years some people are in favor of it some people not but it sounds like you went down just a more traditional carbohydrate fuel based strategy yeah, and, and the answer is absolutely not, Owen. I mean, one of the things I teach is exercise physiology, particularly in, in lab settings. And, and I know that one of the big limitations of, of fat adaptation or fat oxidation during exercise is fats are very slow to oxidize. And so the issue is that once we are primarily using fat as the, as the, as the fuel for exercise, we are very limited in the energy output that we can, we can um, provide. And so, so I, I, I think if you're running exceptionally long endurance events, you know, two, three, four, five, Five days or more, then there is an element of, of absolutely critical fat adaptation. But I really believe that if it's something below 100k and you want to maintain a power output or, you know, an, an energy output that's, that's, that's competitive, you have to rely on carbohydrates. It's just, it's suicide in my mind to try and rely on fats alone. Um, so, so, so carbohydrates are the aim of the game me at, at that intensity you know and there's okay. there's parts of that race on the flats that you're running seven minute miles which is not fast in any competitive sense in a road or a track race but you know in that distance that's a fairly high intensity you'd very you'd struggle to hold seven minute miles primarily using fats as your 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 fuel source uh, okay. and so yeah carbohydrates all the way sure and just to bring you back to the moment joe when you cross the finish line you know you've been used to as we mentioned coming in in the top five top six in national championships picking up lots of wins over the years as well what was the feeling like to to win the 80k that day it, it was great because I had known that I was going to try and move up and do some ultras and I thought I thought it was going to be a difficult ride honestly I 
but it was going to, I was going to really suffer the first few years and that I was going to, you know, them, them wins were going to be frequent, uh, very hard to come by. And so to, to win the first one and to do it, you know, with all due respect to everyone in the race, I, I honestly felt very comfortable. I, I, I would say I won that quite easily. Now, I'm not saying that I would do it again. I think I've very much untested. I'm, I don't think I'm a, I'm a successful or, or a good trail runner by any means. But whatever happened on the day, whether it was my pacing or my nutrition or whatever, even just the way in which the race rolled out, I found it quite comfortable. Um, and so, so for me, I mean, I remember before the race, I joked to Sandra and said, what if I just won this? And she said, don't be so stupid. You know, she was worried about me. She said, just go out and try and finish it for a start, you know? Um, and so it was, it was, a, it was a huge surprise and I was absolutely delighted. You know, it's right up there with one of the top memories, particularly moving to a new sport and having no expectations and then realizing, well, actually maybe, maybe this is something I could be good at as well, you know? So, so yeah. it was great. It was fantastic. Ah, brilliant. And I suppose maybe that brings me on to my next question, Joe, where that was when 20, September 2019, and then maybe you might have been at a crossroads where to actually continue to test yourself, maybe test yourself maybe in a, in a more competitive field or test yourself in an international ultra race. But this summer, I saw, well, only a couple of weeks ago, actually, I saw you making the 1500 metre national track final and you won the 5k race as you mentioned as well so uh, how did you make that decision joe and what were the um, driving factors between maybe continuing with your developing ultra running career or go back to your bread and butter and make another national track final yeah i certainly don't think that it was that i switched from one to the other i mean my plan is in the future to try and balance both of them i know that will be a tough ask um, but I want to race, and so this will give me an opportunity to, to do more races. I had planned after that. I had a whole season lined up. I looked at the, the World Sky Running Series and picked out just the ultras on that. Um, but, of course, everything was cancelled. And then this year as well, I had planned to run both the Eco Trail again. And also, in two weeks' time, I was going to run the Wicklow Way Ultra, the 127K. And just wow. the, yesterday, that was cancelled. So, yeah. so it's just been an unlucky year. Um, so I think I would have still done some track anyway. That's my bread and butter, you know. I mean, in the meantime, and, and right the way through, even training for them i'm very fortunate i can train with the dublin track club so shout out to phelan kelly and the guys you know i'm grateful to be able to to join them and, and we're, so i'm still training as i said like my day job is a track runner and really i see this kind of moonlighting as an ultra runner as well and as i joke to the guys it's a great excuse Owen. you know when i'm not quick enough on the track anymore because i'm old and slow compared to these young guys i tell them listen i'm an ultra runner and then when <laughs> i when i go to the ultras and one day when i'm found wanting and i can't finish the distance or whatever it may be i can say look i'm an 800 meter runner and don't discount joe as well maybe the the opportunity one day to to test yourself out in a trial race maybe to make the irish long distance running team um, they were cancelled in lanzarote this year but they should be on hopefully fingers crossed next year in lanzarote and only yesterday joe it was announced that the european championships in 2022 will have three mountain races together on the same weekend an up and down traditional course a short vertical kilometer race as well which might be in total maybe six kilometers but mainly uphill on a sharp ascent and then they'll have a ultra long distance one maybe up to 60 kilometers in the island of la palma in July 2022. So maybe that's something to, to stick under your eyes for you as well. Um, get yourself a, a green jersey maybe running in, in an ultra race. 
I, I it's definitely an ambition and something I'll definitely look into. I mean, this year I half considered doing the Morris Mullins Ultra, which I know is previously the the qualifying for some of the longer distance internationals. Um, it just fell at a bad time. Um, with between the other two ultras, so I decided not to do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested in. And ultimately, I mean, years ago, outside of of running, my a big love of mine has been um, outdoor adventure sports. I grew up with my father was an outdoor pursuits instructor, so we would have spent a lot of our time as kids outdoors. And so a big part of my pastime today is rock climbing and mountaineering and ice climbing. I spend all my spare time when I'm not training or running doing them. Uh, and so years ago, I actually cycled the the UTMB course, the Tour du Mont Blanc, um, on a mountain bike solo in my in my early twenties. And wow. so for so for as long as I can remember, the UTMB has been right up there on my radar. I mean, I don't know whether I would be able, whether you know, as I said, I'm very much untested over these these ultras. I have a lot to learn and a lot to find out. Um, but certainly, I'd have ambitions down the line. Before I die, I'll try and run the ultra. Uh, to the Tour de Mont Blanc, you know. Do do uh, and there's a great um, ultra running community in Ireland, Joe, as well. A lot of the Inver guys, like Gavin Byrne, for example, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago. I mean, absolutely reach out to them, and I'm sure they'd they'd love to give you a few pointers in the right direction. But Joe, what I wanted to ask next was that we, we've spoken a couple of times now about your durability over a 10, 15 year period making track finals and um, more or less staying healthy over that time period when i was looking at that 800 meter race yesterday in 2006 as far as i'm aware there's only maybe three or four out of that 10 that day that started who are still running and myself yourself i think owen everard maybe might be still yeah he is indeed well. yeah yeah i think niall too he may be on and off maybe I don't know about Niall. The person that won that day was Thomas Chamney. David Campbell was second. A lot of the guys aren't running anymore. So maybe 30 to 40% of the track finalists that day aren't maybe involved in the sport now. Um, But you've managed to keep it going for so long. And Joe, what I was going to ask you was, how have you managed to do that? I mean, what do you think are the keys to your success? And something that we can share maybe that listeners can apply to their own training to help ensure that they stay healthy and fit. And that what I often say in the podcast is that, you know, I really believe that we can have 20, 30 year running careers and not just over a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, it's definitely that you have to have the graph for, for the sport, you know. I mean, running has been the number one love of my life for as long as I can remember. And as I said, it's given me more things in my life than, than I could ever have imagined. And so that, that that's something that I could testify for myself and also for, for someone like Owen Everard, who's a good friend of mine. You know, we both have an indomitable love of racing and of training. And so, so having that passion for it essential and that keeps you motivated um, right the way through you know it's it's a sport of of no secrets as I'm sure you're w- well aware and most of the listeners are you know there are no shortcuts in this it's about diligence it's about getting out day after day about putting in the time when the weather's bad when you're tired and all these factors and and, and trying to 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 you know be consistently involved um, right the way through as far as longevity from it from a injury perspective I think one of the things of course I benefited from is that I've always been interested in sports science. Um, and I've also, I think, been a little bit smarter than other people with regards to, to knowing when to back off, you know. Um, you know if one thing that I can say for certain is one of the areas that I would look into a lot is that really we don't know exactly what the principal causes are of most injuries that people experience. And there are very rarely one single cause of, of these injuries. They're what we call multifactorial anomalies. They're very complex um, 
to understand and complex to diagnose and to to, to do to understand to, to treat so so the key is to to start to learn about your own body you know treat this as a case study where n equals one and you start to over time fully understand how much is too much for you when to push it and when not to push it when to ease back on the training also a big part of that is knowing at what part of the year when you should be going full tilt mentally you know what at what point should you be putting in that full effort and dedicating everything you do towards this and what part of the year should you actively switch off and just go through the motions so i think that psychological approach to long-term training is really important you know and you typically see for example i was talking to a couple of younger athletes last week they come off of a track season where they've been slightly disappointed and they said right from week on I'm going to do everything right and then next year when it gets to this point I'm going to be in the best shape of my life and I said well actually you should probably just you know just chill now for a few months because if you go 100 miles an hour now into this and give it everything you've got and all of your energy then by Christmas you're going to be burnt out and that that burnout may manifest as a physical injury but it could more likely burn out uh, result in you just not really being up for the same amount of dedication and then you'll start making mistakes you'll start cutting corners and things will typically drop so so again that's that psychological component of knowing when to engage when to switch on and focus on your training and when just to go through the motions I think is really important and fr from a, from an injury specific perspective I think the big thing that I've learned uh, and I learned this long ago which I think is a big part of of having a relatively injury-free career is knowing when to take a day off. You know, we 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 tend to fall into these very prescriptive um, training blocks where we must do this on a Saturday, we must do a session on a Tuesday, Thursday, we must do a long run on a on a Sunday. And and if you deviate from this normal training, you're considered weak, or you start you know getting judged by other people, or, or even think that you are. Most of the time, you're not, of course. And so, actually, having the flexibility or the the independence to be able to say, you know what, actually today I'm not feeling it, and I'm going to take a day off I'm, I'm tired I'm sore uh, and and those flexibilities that you make in your training are really critical factors I mean only actually what day is today Friday yesterday Thursday morning I was supposed to do a, a long tempo session with the DTC crowd I woke up my legs were sore I hadn't slept that well I knew that the ultra in two weeks being cancelled and I said you know what I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that tempo today and I went out for 35 minutes easy and then I'll definitely feel better from that tomorrow as a result so so I think just being intelligent, you know, there's, unfortunately, there are no quick fixes to injuries. There are no secrets to success that will keep you on the road, bar being intelligent about the way that you approach your training. Yeah, it's great advice, Joe. And I mean, it's something that it took me such a long time to learn. Um, for example, I remember for, for years and years, Joe, I used to think, well, I'll have a rest when I get injured <laughs> or I'll have a rest when I get sick. And in the meantime, I'll just keep on training. Um, and invariably, I did get injured, but I might I might have been injured then for two months or three months, which was just a disaster where maybe if I had of used a approach and tried to be maybe tried to peak on two two or three occasions maximum a year and actually be patient and be disciplined and take my week or take my two weeks off I, I would have had a I would have avoided half of the injuries I'm sure that that I got over over the last 15 years um, and I know even even now for example that only now am I learning that like you said take a day off if you have a bad sleep don't worry about a session don't just do a session because it's tuesday and tuesday is the typical day Absolutely. when you have when you have to do reps and even like something you mentioned at the start of the conversation i think you said that you you put on maybe seven kilos 
But that's not a disaster. It's okay for the body not to be at 100% capacity all year round. And if you put on four or five kilos or seven kilos, whatever it is, once you start training and with a little bit of patience, you'll get back to race weight in time for when you need to be. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is a strategy known as weight cycling, which is actually really healthy for long term um, physiological function, you know. So what we shouldn't be trying to do is maintain a, a very strict race weight for 365 days of the year. I mean, seven for me was too much. So I was out of shape by a country mile and that was by, that I had a six six week layoff with a calf tear and, and various other factors. So I certainly wouldn't suggest that much. Um, but as I said a, a minute ago, when we go into that phase in which it's that pre-competition period and we should be course planning our entire season beforehand we should know when the key phases are and then from there we can start making them adjustments to getting ourselves in race shape so that we're only at the leanest point when we need to be and then outside of that we can carry that little bit extra and because it's really healthy and, and really important for normal body function to not be in that super lean state all year round yeah i can i can testify to that joe and um, i'll admit that probably between 2017 and the start of this year, um, shocking behavior really, but I used to weigh myself pretty much every morning. And because in, in mountain racing, when you're climbing, you know, naturally, a bit like the cyclists in the Tour de France, the, the best cyclists are, are the leanest stand and that have the, the less weight to carry uphill. And because my focus over the last couple of years have been trying to make Irish teams for, for mountain races, I used to try and maintain my race championship weight all year round. And, you know, I freely admit that I did that for about two and a half, three years. And I got to the point in January and February this year, Joe, where I was just exhausted. I was looking yeah. at photographs of myself. I was looking at races that I was doing. Joe, I was still having good results back in January and February, but I had to go to the well in every single race. And I was getting to the finish line exhausted like i just ran a marathon but it might have just been maybe an 8k cross country race or a local 5k race here and now looking back it's because i tried to maintain that championship race weight and remain in peak fitness consistently over a three year period. yeah and you're absolutely right psychologically you just can't maintain that level of effort for for the entire year it's got to be a very directed specific period at which you engage with it and then you pull off so it's so classic that we see people pull into that cycle of weighing themselves daily or judging themselves in the mirror and we know that this leads to a myriad of of issues down the line you know which is really negative so so body weight you know and all of the issues associated with it is a is a, a slippery slope as you as you mentioned yeah. Um, so just to change, change rhythm a little bit. Um, I mentioned in the intro, in the intro, Joe, that you're one of the country's leading academics in, in sport. And you mentioned in one of your articles there recently, and if I can just quote back one of the lines from your article about human performance. And um, you said, often I feel as though the more I learn, the less I actually understand about what some would consider the basics of human performance. And this is a sentiment mirrored by many of my colleagues. And Joe, I can totally get what you mean by that because in today's world where we're bombarded with so much information through social media, running websites, often basic, important, good information from our experienced coaches, um, they can get lost in all that noise. So I just wanted to ask you, from your academic experience, from your own real life training as well, 
what for you is the basics of human performance? To, to quote uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Liam Hennessy, you know, we say methods are many and principles are few, but methods always change and principles never do. And, and so it's a, it's a great reminder that we, you're absolutely right, we get caught up in all of these details and we live in an era where everything is data driven and we got all this technology and all this inf information coming in, which may be misinformation and all these factors. But ultimately, we have to remember that that the basics of human adaptation are it's a stress response model. You know, we apply a stress to the body and then we have to allow a period of time for the body to adapt to them stressors and then we apply them again. And we do this in a consistent repetitive fashion again and again and again, going back to the idea of consistency of training. And you will inevitably see these slow results over time. And too often now people are trying to to you know, take shortcuts for these basic human adaptations by thinking that if they buy a new pair of shoes, that it's going to make them a bit quicker, or if they wear this new pair of tights, or these add this new technology into their repertoire of training, that suddenly it's going to improve what they do. But unfortunately, it comes back. The most basic principle of training is that you apply a stress to the body, you allow a period of recovery, and then you you apply that stress again, and then eventually your body becomes resilient. It adapts itself, and it becomes um, much better at that. Now there is, of course, a genetic component of that, which is some people will respond faster and slower. Some people may not respond to certain types of training. Um, and so another good um, quote that I use all the time is that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And so yeah. how, you know, how many times you hear that guy who says, you know, I've been training for a marathon for, for five years and, and I really want to break four minutes and I've, I'm try training every day. I'm doing everything I can and I just can't seem to do it. And you say, and you ask them what they're doing. It turns out that they're going for an easy run every day. And they think that just by running that they're going to get quicker. Um, and so again, if it's not working, then if there's an extended period of doing the same thing with minimal change in your results, well, then it's time to review what you're doing, you know? And so in that case, you need to run quicker. You need to add in some intervals or whatever it may be. So, so the principles of training are very straightforward. We have to apply specific stressors that are relevant to the, the discipline that we're, we're training for. So if it's something like an ultra, well, there needs to be a long run um, on some trail-specific surfaces, um, you know, regularly in that training block. And, th and for some people, that could be every week if you have the tolerance for it. Some, some people, it could be only be every month, you know. Um, what I was doing in my training, for example, was I was, I was kind of periodizing my Sunday long run. So I would start with a two hours, and the next week would be three, and then i go four and then um, I might go up to five. So twice I went up to a five-hour run and then I'd go right back the following week, back down to two and I'd start building back up again. So I yeah. wouldn't be trying to back-to-back -back these big long runs like that because again, understand this principle of adaptation. If I'm going to have a high stress on the body and this would change depending on other stresses that are coming with like workload or whatever it may be, um, well then I'd need to make sure I allow time to adapt to them, you know? Um, and so that that going back to my earlier point of being flexible in your training is so important here because if you're stuck to that rigid training regimen and you're not recovering between these sessions, well, then you need to change what you're doing. You know, just doing the same thing again and hoping that suddenly your body will be able to tolerate it is just madness. Yeah. Patience and hard work combined in their right way, Joe, by the sounds of it. Absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, people constantly ask well, what the secrets to this and there is no secrets, as you well know, and in this sport, yeah. you know, it's, it's about yeah. consistency. Yeah, definitely. Um, Joe, a final topic just to touch on today. You've done a lot of work and research regarding minimalist footwear. Um, I have to admit that I love my own Vivo barefoot shoes that I have, um, but I would only wear them 
day to day around the house, walking around town or whatever, but I would never try them for training or racing. Um, I did try them a couple of years ago when I was working with Rene Borg and we were coming back from an injury and Rene just said, oh, give these a shot, see what you think. But I just found the difference between minimalist shoes and then just your standard running shoes. For me, it was just too extreme. And I probably didn't have the patience to put in the time to give the body a chance to adapt to minimalist shoes for racing and training in. Joe, what were, what were your own conclusions um, from the work and the research you did regarding minimalist shoes? Yeah, okay. So we probably have to step back a bit here and, and look at the bigger picture to put it into context because, you know, a lot of people when they when they, they saw my work, they thought that I was out really to try and compare footwear against one another. But what I was trying to answer was an important question, which is is it safe and feasible for people today as modern developed Westerners to take off these cushioned and protective shoes um, and then run in shoes that, that do not have anywhere near the same degree of of you know so called technology and in inverted commas. So protective technologies like cushioning and elevation and pronation control and all these other factors because of course there was a big movement in in maybe 10 15 years ago where people started to push out a lot of research that said that barefoot running was far better for you and indeed there, there is certainly evidence and i would my own evidence would also push in this direction that running without shoes on or running in ultra minimal shoes does have benefits when it comes to a reduction in potential injury factors and also an improvement in running economy and eventually an improvement in running performance but the big issue here, and this is where, you know, really we've seen this whole thing move from what should have been a very positive scientific movement, which is we've, you know, people going back to doing the basics right, to what was known as a fad, because everyone suddenly realized, oh, look, barefoot and minimalist shoes is very good for you. Um, and everyone tried to do it. And of course, now we have this issue where today we live in an environment where we're not physically robust enough to tolerate large changes like something taking off our shoes. You know, nine, 90% of our waking life is spent in protective structures structured shoes and this has very strong implications for the way in which our feet develop and the way in which we we interact with the ground and our gait both walking and running and all of these other factors so when you take up this you know physically weak and, and lack of um, robustness type of population in developed western world and then suddenly ask them all to take their shoes off it's inevitable that this leads to a host of running injuries um and that's indeed what happened. And we saw, you know, a massive spike in what we call transition related injuries. And as you said yourself, Owen, you know, you tried taking them off for a while. You found it was not comfortable. It was really difficult to make the change. You probably had a lot of lower leg soreness and all these other factors that came with it. Yeah. And so and so my research also pointed this out. You know, I often get a, a name this guy who was trying to push barefoot running but nothing could have been further from the truth my a lot of my research clearly identified look if you take off your shoes during this transition period there is a substantial increased risk of injury so so i eventually kind of came to this point where if i was to, to give people advice on shoes it would be the following the first is to vary your shoes as much as possible um, and that sounds kind of contradictory to what you might expect. So people like to think that there is a certain shoe that works for them and they should stick to that. And indeed, if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So 
if you haven't got any injuries and you're totally pain-free and everything is totally fine, then don't change anything because the, nat- the purpose here is of running. It's not about what you're wearing on your feet. But unfortunately, the injury statistics of today would suggest that upwards of 60 to 80% of runners every year are getting injured, which means that it's not okay most of the time. And so varying your footwear can be one of the ways that we can try to manipulate the stressors on the lower legs and reduce chronic overuse injuries because we know that chronic overuse has come from repetitive stresses in exactly the same location by running in the same way on the same surfaces. So variability is actually really important. And that variability can come from doing some of your running in minimal shoes, doing some in structured shoes, whatever you're comfortable with, doing some of your training off-road and on the trail and some on the road, some on the grass, whatever it may be. As much variability that we can program into this, um, this training and these decisions we make are definitely beneficial for injury. But second thing that I is that everybody should do some training in ultra minimal or minimal shoes. But people will hear that and say, well, you know, surely he doesn't mean that everyone takes their shoes off all the time. And that's absolutely true. What I would advocate is that a very small proportion of everybody's training should be done without shoes on. And that could be as little as 5% of your training a week, you know, one to two kilometers once you've built up to it. Because we know that the basic principles of adaptation in the feet work just the same as any other muscle in the body. And so, for example, we spend a lot of time as runners doing core stability work, or we do leg strength, or we do glute work, or whatever it may be. But the neglect element of the entire body is the human foot and that's the one that takes the most amount of stress and that's the one responsible with every contact that we make with the ground and so it's essential that we have some kind of training to make sure that this is the most robust ligament and joint and, and structure in the body and so a small amount of training every week I would really encourage that people do without their shoes on but with that big caveat that if you do too much of it you are going to get injured so it must be very smart you know I would say the first time you take your shoes off it should be a minute duration and then the next day it should be two and you build up to maybe only 10 minutes a week of your training without shoes on so you know people would would look at me for example and say well this is the guy that's been trying to push minimal shoes which isn't true um but regardless that seems to be the name i have but actually you know 50% 50% of my training is in a normal shoe and 50% yeah. is in a is in a lightweight minimalist kind of um, flexible um, racer and yeah. I do then particularly in the summer I'll do upwards of you know, maybe maybe a mile two miles a week without my shoes on but that's it I'm, I'm not spending all my time without my shoes on just trying to prove a prove a point because that's ultimately where this whole movement about shoes really went off the rails yeah no it's great advice joe and what i certainly enjoyed maybe over the last five or six years since i became aware of minimalist shoes is as we were saying on my day-to-day business walking around at home i have my vivo barefoots on and at least then my feet are getting that direct contact with the ground they have room to breathe they have room to expand as opposed to to the typical maybe office type shoe that that we wear and especially high heels say for the the girls where they have that horrible pointy toe end which means our toes are crushed inwards towards the top of the shoe which i think is so harmful and damaging for our feet absolutely if people could take anything from the conversation maybe today is take on board what you're saying and if you're a little bit afraid to go training in them Maybe just try it walking around town, walking around the office, walking around at home. Get yourself a pair of Vivo Barefoots or whatever they might be. And maybe a final point, Joe, that I'd add is, and I was talking to Rene about this yesterday, give your kids a chance to try out the the wider-based barefoot-type shoes so that from an early age, their feet 
are learning to breathe and learning to expand. So from an early age, their little feet that are developing aren't getting squashed so early. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the kids of the future are the ones in which we can make positive changes with regard to shoes, you know. And I mean, there was even a time in schools where what you wore was your, the, the plimsolls, you know, them very small kind of minimalist flexible shoes. And now, of course, everyone has to wear a certain type of shoe in school. And it's, it's, it's not OK to not wear them. But, but kids should spend as much time as possible without their shoes on. Um, and it's, you know, for that normal functional foot development, it's essential. Yeah. Well, well, listen, Joe, it's been a wonderful 45 minutes or so talking to you. Hopefully we'll have you maybe again on soon because there's, there's lots and lots of things that we could touch on. Maybe just one last question, Joe, is that I know you're very interested in the carbon plate foot for, footwear as well. Can you see carbon plates ever making an introduction into trail running races? Um, I know myself, Joe, one day I tried on my vapor flies running over the hills around town. Now, not on the trails, but just running over typical streets that were quite hilly. And it was an absolute disaster. The, the carbon plates just didn't work running uphill or even downhill. For me, they only maybe work on the flat. Um, any, any opinion, Joe, on carbon plates ever making it to the hills? Jesus, a great question. I could actually talk about these shoes all day for sure. Um, so I, they would have to be a lower profile shoe if they were to make it, but I don't believe that you would have the, the consistent surface response to make them really worthwhile or beneficial. You know, one yeah. of the things I would really advocate for running in the hills on the trails is that we should be wearing a lower profile shoe because the higher that you raise the center of mass of the shoe off the ground, the more likely you're going to get what we call eversion forces. In other words, you're, you're going to be constantly going over on your ankle. Uh, and the problem with these shoes, one is that they're, they're quite soft and so they're not going to give you much um, feeling of traction on these various surfaces in the hills and secondly of course um, that they're quite high off the ground so so I imagine it would be a disaster right now so you know the the, the whole principle behind these shoes is that they essentially restitute energy off of a, a stiff surface um, and yeah. so that that surface contact the quality of that contact is essential so so I can't see them moving into the hills and indeed I hope they don't because I think trail runners and, and hill runners have a great um, opportunity to wear lesser developed um, or, or less structured shoes and uh, it suits itself or lends itself far better to that environment. Okay well listen Joe thanks a million for that and as I said it's been a real pleasure today good luck with your racing over the next two or three years or so from your magnificent range of 800 meters to 80k ultras and uh, fingers crossed Joe one day we'll see you running maybe in an Irish vest uh, in an ultra championship. Thanks, Owen. It's been an absolute pleasure. Big fan of the show, and uh, you're doing great stuff. Thanks, Mojo. Talk to you soon. See you soon. Lots to take there from Joe's interview, lots of good messages and lots of learnings to help ensure that our running career is as long as it possibly can be and that we get to be the best possible runner that we can be as well. I hope you were also able to take something from our discussion on doping and trail running with Rene earlier on in the episode and I think an important thing that we can do as athletes and members of the trail running community is to make sure that our voices are heard with the big brands and the big organisations in terms of our desire for a clean sport i'll leave it at that for this week everyone have a good week enjoy those miles enjoy the training everybody let's get our running gear on let's go